0: Welcome, welcome to my kitchen and I hope you're sitting comfortably because I'm going to read to you, I'm going to read to you from the book called Wanderlust, A History of Walking by Rebecca Solnit and this is chapter 2 which is called The Mind at 3 Miles an Hour and it's, let's just see, how long a chapter is it? I think it's probably way longer than I'm going to read this time. So I'm going to, we'll read, we'll read maybe about 10 minutes of this, and depending upon how it goes, we'll carry on the reading on another day. So here we go, chapter two of the book, The Mind at Three Miles an Hour, Part One, Pedestrian Architecture. Jean-Jacques Rousseau remarked in his confessions, I can only meditate when i am walking when i stop i cease to think my mind only works with my legs the history of walking goes back further than the history of human beings but the history of walking as a as a conscious cultural act rather than as a means to an end is only a few centuries old in europe and Rousseau stands at its beginning That history began with the walks of various characters in the 18th century, but the more literary among them strove to consecrate walking by tracing it to Greece, whose practices were so happily revered and misrepresented then. The eccentric English revolutionary and writer John Thelwall wrote a massive, turgid book, The Peripatetic uniting Rousseauian Romanticism with this spurious classical tradition. Quote, in one respect at least, I may boast of a resemblance to the simplicity of the ancient sages. I pursue my meditations on foot, he remarked. And after Thelwald's book appeared in 1793, many more would make the claim, until it became an established idea that the ancients walked to think, so much so that the very picture seems part of cultural history. Austerely draped men, speaking gravely as they paced through a dry Mediterranean landscape, punctuated with the occasional marble column. This belief arose from a coincidence of architecture and language, when Aristotle was ready to set up a school in Athens, the city assigned him a plot of land. Quote, in it, exclaims, explains Felix Graeaeff's history of this school, stood shrines to Apollo and the Muses, and perhaps other smaller buildings. A covered colonnade led to the Temple of Apollo, and perhaps connected the temple with the shrine of the Muses, whether it had existed before or was only built now, is not known. This colonnade or walk, Peripatos, gave the school its name. It seems that it was here, at least at the beginning, that the pupils assembled and the teachers gave their lectures. Here they wandered to and fro. For this reason, it was later said that Aristotle himself lectured and taught while walking up and down. Quotation. The philosophers who came from it were called the peripatetic philosophers or the peripatetic school, and in English, the word peripatetic means one who walks habitually and extensively. Thus, their name links thinking with walking. There is something more to this than the coincidence that established a school of philosophy in a temple of Apollo with a long colonnade, slightly more. The Sophists, the philosophers who dominate Athenian life before Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, were famously wanderers, who often taught in the grove where Aristotle's school would be located. Plato's assault on the sophists was so furious that the words sophist and sophistry are still synonymous with deception and guile, though the root sophia has to do with wisdom. The sophists, however, functioned something like the cotocquas, I don't know the word, and public lecturers in 19th century America, who went from place to place delivering talks to audiences hungry for information and ideas. Though they thought taught rhetoric as a tool of political power and the ability to persuade and argue was crucial in Greek democracy, the sophists taught other things besides. Plato, whose half-fabricated character Socrates is one of the wiliest and most persuasive debaters of all time, is somewhat disingenuous when he attacks the sophists. Whether or not the sophists were virtuous, they were often mobile, as are many of those whose first loyalty is to ideas. It may be that loyalty to something as immaterial as ideas sets thinkers apart from those whose loyalty is tied to a people and locale, For the loyalty that ties down the latter will often drive the former from place to place it is an attachment that requires detachment two ideas are not as reliable or popular a crop as say corn and those who cultivate them often must keep moving in pursuit of support as well as truth many professions in many cultures from musicians to medics have been nomadic, possessed of a kind of diplomatic immunity to the strife between communities that keeps others local. Aristotle himself had at first intended to become a doctor, as his father had been, and doctors in that time were members of a secretive guild of travellers who claimed descent from the god of healing. Had he become a philosopher in the era of the sophists, he might have been mobile anyway, for settled philosophy schools were first established in Athens in his time. It is now impossible to say whether or not Aristotle and his peripatetics habitually walked while they talked philosophy, but the link between thinking and walking recurs in ancient Greece and Greek architecture accommodated walking as a social and conversational activity, just as the peripatetics took their name from the Peripathos of their schools, so the Stoics were named after the stoa or colonnade in Athens, a most unstoically painted walkway where they walked and talked. Long afterwards, the association between walking and philosophizing became so widespread that Central Europe has places named after it. The celebrating Philosophenweg in Heidelberg, where Hegel is said to have walked, the Philosophen Dam in Königsberg that Kant passed on his daily stroll, now replaced by a railway station, and the Philosopher's Way, Kierkegaard mentions in Copenhagen. And philosophers who walked, well, walking is a universal human activity. Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill and many others walked far, and Thomas Hobbes even had a walking stick with an inkhorn built into it so he could jot down ideas as he went. Frail Immanuel Kant took a daily walk around Königsberg after dinner. But it was merely for exercise because he did his thinking, sitting by the stove and staring at the church tower out the window. The young Friedrich Nietzsche declares with superb conventionality For recreation I turn to three things, and a wonderful recreation they provide. My Schopenhauer, Schumann's music, and finally, solitary walks. In the 20th century, Bernard Russell recounts of his friend Ludwig Wittgenstein. He used to come to my rooms at midnight, and for hours he would walk backwards and forwards like a caged tiger. On arrival he would announce that when he left my rooms he would commit suicide, So in spite of getting sleepy, I I did not like to turn him out. One such evening, after an hour or two of dead silence, I said to him, Wittgenstein, are you thinking about logic or about your sins? Both, he said, and then reverted to silence. Philosophers walked, but philosophers who thought about walking are rarer philosophers who thought about walking are rarer like let me pause there we're clearly in chapter two of this book into well the sophists seem to be quite good guys really in comparison with (laughs) the people who they get the names they that are applied to people so where are we going to go to next well, we just have to see, we're going on to consecrating walking, consecrating walking. So, look forward to reading that to you. All the best in the meanwhile, and just to remind you, this is a reading from Wanderlust, a history of walking by Rebecca Solnit, and this is the new edition. I have no idea anything about the old edition. Welcome back. Welcome back. We're going to go on to now this part two of chapter two, Consecrating Walking. It was Rousseau who laid the groundwork for the ideological edifice within which walking itself would be enshrined. Not the walking that took Wittgenstein back and forth in Russell's room, but the walking that took Nietzsche out into the landscape. In 1749, the writer and encyclopedist Denis Diderot was thrown into jail for writing an essay questioning the goodness of God. Rousseau, a close friend of Diderot's at the time, took to visiting him in jail, walking the six miles from his home in Paris to the dungeon of the Chateau de Vincennes. Though that summer was extremely hot, says Rousseau, his not entirely reliable confessions 1781 to 88 he walked because he was too poor to travel by other means in order to slacken my pace writes Rousseau I thought of taking a book with me one day I took the Mercure de France and glancing through it as I walked I came upon this question propounded by the Dijon Academy for the next year's prize has the progress of the sciences and arts done more to corrupt morals or to improve them I'll read that again has the progress of the sciences and arts done more to corrupt morals or improve them good question the moment I read that I beheld another universe and became (coughs) excuse me another man In this other universe, this other man won the prize and the published essay became famous for its furious condemnation of such progress. Rousseau was less an original thinker than a daring one. He gave the boldest articulation to existing tensions and the most fervent praise to emerging sensibilities. The assertion that God, monarchical government, and nature were all harmoniously aligned, was becoming untenable. Rousseau, with his lower middle-class resentments, his Calvinistic Swiss suspicion of kings and Catholicism, his desire to shock, and his unshakable self-confidence was the person to make specific and political those distant rumblings of discord. In the discourse on the arts and letters he declared that learning and even printing corrupt and and even printing corrupt and weaken both the individual and the culture, I better read that again, in the discourse on the arts and letters he declared that learning and even printing corrupt and weaken both the individual and the culture quote, Behold how luxury, licentiousness, and slavery have in all periods been punishment for the arrogant attempts we have made to emerge from the happy ignorance in which eternal wisdom has placed us. End quote. The arts and sciences, he asserted, lead not to happiness nor to self knowledge, but to destru- distraction and corruption. Now, I didn't know that was Rousseau's point of view, really. I only was at one lecture about Rousseau in my entire life. Now, let's go on. Now, the assumption that the natural, the good, and the simple are all aligned seems commonplace at best. Then it was incendiary. In Christian theology, nature and humanity had both fallen from grace before Eden. It was Christian civilization that redeemed them, so that goodness was a culture rather than a natural state. This Rousseauian reversal that insists that men and nature are better in their original condition is, among other things, an attack on cities, aristocrats, technology, sophistication, and sometimes theology. And it is still going on today, though curiously the French, who were his primary audience and whose revolution he contributed to, have in the long run been less responsive to these ideas than the British, the Germans and the Americans. Rousseau developed these ideas further in his Discourse on the Origin and Foundation of Inequality, 1794. Uh, sorry, 1754, and in his novels, Julie, 1761 and Emile. 1762. Both novels portray in various ways a simpler, more rural life, though none of them acknowledge the hard manual labour of most rural people. His fictional characters lived, as he himself did at his happiest, in unostentatious ease, supported by invisible toilers the inconsistencies in Rousseau's work don't matter for it is less a cogent analysis than the expression of a new sensibility and its new enthusiasms that Rousseau wrote with great elegance is one of those inconsistencies and one of the reasons he was so widely read In the Discourse on Equality, Rousseau portrays man in his natural condition, quote, wandering in the forests, without industry, without speech, without domicile, without war, and without liaisons, with no need of his fellow men, likewise with no desire, desire to harm them, end quote, even while he admits that we cannot know what this condition was, The treatise offhandedly ignores Christian narratives of human origins and reaches towards a prescient comparative anthropology of social evolution instead. And though it reiterates Christianity's theme of the fall from grace, it reverses the direction of this fall. It is no longer into nature, but into culture. In this ideology, walking functions as an emblem of the simple man, and as, when the walk is solitary and rural, a means of being in nature and outside society. The walker has the detachment of the traveller, but travels unadorned and unaugmented, dependent on his or her own bodily strength, rather than on conveniences that can be made and bought. Horses, boats, carriages. Walking is, after all, an activity essentially unimproved since the dawn of time. Walking is, after all, an activity essentially unimproved since the dawn of time. In portraying himself so often as a pedestrian, Rousseau claims kin to this ideal walker before history, and he did walk extensively throughout his life. His wandering life began when he returned to Geneva from a Sunday stroll in the country only to find he had come back too late. The gates of the city were shut. Impulsively, the 15-year-old Rousseau decided to abandon his birthplace, his apprenticeship and eventually his religion. He turned from the gates and walked out of Switzerland. In Italy and France, he found and left many jobs, patrons and friends, during a life that seemed aimless until the day he read Mercure de France and found his vocation. Even after, he seemed to be trying to recover the carefree wandering of his youth. He writes of one episode, I do not remember ever having had in all my life a spell of time so completely free from care and anxiety as those seven or eight days spent on the road. This memory has left me the strongest taste for everything associated with it, for mountains especially and for travelling on foot. I have never travelled so except in my prime, and it has always been a delight to me. For a long time while I searched Paris for any two men sharing my tastes, each willing to contribute 50 louis from his purse and a year of his time for a joint tour of Italy on foot with no other attendant than a lad to come with us and carry a knapsack (laughs) God I gotta read that again. For a long time for no, for a long while I searched Paris for any two men sharing my tastes, each willing to contribute fifty Louis from his purse and a year of his time for a joint tour of Italy on foot, with no other attendant than a lad to come with us and carry a knapsack poor old lad was going to carry all the baggages Rousseau never found serious candidates for this early version of a walking tour and never explained why companions were necessary to its execution unless they were to pay the bills but he continued to walk at every opportunity elsewhere he claimed never did I think so much exist so vividly and experience so much, never have I been so much myself if I may use that expression, as in the journeys I have taken alone and on foot. There is something about walking which stimulates and enlivens my thoughts. When I stay in one place, I can hardly think at all. My body has to be on the move to set my mind going. The sight of the countryside, the succession of pleasant views, the open air, the sound of appetite, no, a sound appetite, and the good health I gain by walking. The easy atmosphere of an inn, the absence of everything that makes me feel my dependence, of everything that recalls me to my situation, all these serve to free my spirit, to lend a greater boldness to my thinking, so that I can consume them, select them, and make them mine as I will without fear or restraint. End of quote. It was, of course, an ideal walking that he described chosen freely by a healthy person amid pleasant and safe circumstances. And it is this kind of walking that would be taken up by his countless heirs as an expression of well-being, harmony with nature, freedom and virtue. Rousseau portrays walking as both an exercise of simplicity and a means of contemplation. During the time he wrote the discourse. He would walk alone in the Bois de Boulogne after dinner, thinking over subjects for works to be written and not returning till night. The confessions from which these these, these passages come were not published until after Rousseau's death. In 1762 his books had been burned in Paris and Geneva and his life as a wandering exile had begun even before the confessions were finished. However, his readers already associated him with peripatetic excursions. When an adoring James Boswell came to visit Rousseau near near Neuchâtel, Switzerland, in 1764, Boswell wrote, to prepare myself for the great interview, I walked out alone. I strolled pensive by the side of the river Ruse, In a beautiful wild valley surrounded by immense mountains, some covered with frowning rocks, others with glittering snow. Boswell, who was at 24, as self conscious as Rousseau and more foppish about it, already knew that walking, solitude, and wilderness were Rousseauian and clad his mind in their effects. As he might have adorned his body for a more conventional meeting. I think we'll pause there. We'll pause there. And what comes next is about solitude being an ambiguous state. Well, I promised you solitude, and solitude I shall give you as Rebecca Solnit continues the history of walking. Solitude is an ambiguous state throughout Rousseau's writings. In the Discourse on the Origin and Foundations of Inequality, he portrays human beings in their natural state as isolated dwellers in a hospitable forest. Isolated dwellers in a hospitable forest. But in his more personal work, he often portrays solitude not as an ideal state, but as a consolation and refuge for the man who has been betrayed and disappointed. In fact, much of his writing revolves around the question of whether and how one should relate to one's fellow humans. Hypersensitive, almost to the point of paranoia, and convinced of his own rightness under the most dubious circumstances, Rousseau overreacted to the judgments of others. A lot of people do that. Yet never could or would subdue his unorthodox and often abrasive ideas and acts It is now popularly proposed that his writing universalizes his experience and that his picture of man's fall from simplicity and grace into corruption is little more than a portrait of Rousseau's fall from Swiss simplicity and security or merely from childhood naivety into his uncertain life abroad among aristocrats and intellectuals. Whether this is so or not, his his version has been so influential that few are entirely beyond its reach nowadays. Finally, at the end of his life, he wrote Reveries of a Solitary Walker, Les Reveries du Promeneur Solitaire, in the original, 1782, a book that is and is not about walking. See, nothing would more intrigue me than to say the book is and is not about walking. That's what I love about uh, this author. Each of its chapters is called a walk, and in the second walk he states his premise. Quote, Having therefore decided to describe my habitual state of mind in this, the strangest situation which any mortal will ever know, I could think of no simpler or surer way of carrying out my plan, and to keep a faithful record of my solitary walks and the reveries that accompany them. End quote. Each of these short personal essays resembles the sequence of thoughts or preoccupations one might entertain on a walk, though there is no evidence they are the fruit of specific walks. Several are meditations on a phrase, some are recollections, some are little more than aired grievances together the ten essays the eighth and ninth are still drafts and the tenth was left unfinished at the time of his death in 1778 portray a man who has taken refuge in the thoughts and botanical pursuits of his walks and who through them seeks and recalls a safer haven a solitary walker is in the world but apart from it with the detachment of the traveler rather than the ties of the worker, the dweller, the member of a group. Walking seems to have become Rousseau's chosen mode of being, because within a walk he is able to live in thought and reverie, to be self-sufficient, and thus to survive the world he feels has betrayed him. It provides him with a literal position from which to speak. As a literary structure, the recounted walk encourages digression and association, in contrast to the stricter form of a discourse or the chronological progression of a biographical or historical narrative. A century and a half later, James Joyce and Virginia Woolf would, in trying to describe the workings of the mind, develop the style called stream of consciousness. In their novels, Ulysses and Mrs. Dalloway, the jumble of thoughts and recollections of their protagonists unfolds best during walks. This kind of unstructured, associative thinking is the kind most often connected to walking, and it suggests walking as not an analytic, but an improvisational act. Rousseau's reveries are one of the first portraits of this relationship between thinking and walking. Rousseau walks alone, and the plants he gathers and strangers he encounters are the only beings towards whom he expresses tenderness. In the ninth walk, he reminisces about earlier walks, which seem to slide out from each other like secretions of, like sections of a telescope, to focus on his distant past. He begins with a walk two days before, to the École Militaire, then moves to one outside Paris two years before. And then to a garden excursion with his wife four or five years before and finally recounts an incident that predated even this last recollection by many years in which he bought all the apples a poor girl was selling and distributed them among hungry urchins loitering nearby. All these recollections were prompted by reading an obituary of an acquaintance that mentioned her love for children and triggered Rousseau's guilt about his own abandoned children, although modern scholars sometimes doubt he had any children to begin with. His confessions say he had five by his common-law wife, Therese, and put all of them in orphanages. These recollections argue against a change. No one but he himself has levelled. Let me read that again. These recollections argue against a charge no one but himself has levelled and they do so by declaring his affection for children as demonstrated in these casual encounters. The essay is a ruminative defence for an imagined trial. The conclusion shifts the subject to the tribulations his fame has brought him and his inability to walk unrecognised and in peace among people. The implication is that even in his this most casual of social exchanges he has been thwarted so that only the terrain of the reverie leaves him freedom to roam. Most of the book was written while he was living in Paris, isolated by his fame and his suspicion. If the literature of philosophical walking begins with Rousseau, it is because he was one of the first who thought it worthwhile to record in detail the circumstances of his musing. If he was a radical, his most profoundly radical act was to revalue the personal and the private, for which walking, solitude and wilderness provided favourable conditions. If he inspired revolutions, revolutions in imagination and culture as well as in political organisation, they were for him only necessary to overthrow the impediments to such experience. The full force of his intellect and his most compelling arguments had been made in the cause of recovering and perpetuating such states of mind and life as he describes in Reveries of a Solitary Walker. In two walks, he recollected. He, rec- yeah, he recollects the interludes of rural peace he most treasured in the famous fifth walk he describes the happiness he found on the island of Saint-Pierre on the island on the lake of Bienne to which he fled after being stoned and driven out of Mottier near Neuchâtel where Boswell had visited him wherein lay this great contentment he asks rhetorically and goes on to describe a life in which he owed, owned little and did little except botanize and boat. It is this Rousseauian, peaceable kingdom, privileged enough that no manual labor is required, but without the sophistication and socializing of an aristocratic retreat. The Tenth Walk is a pean to the similar rural happiness he had with his patroness and lover Louise de Waron, when he was a teenager. It was written when he had finally found a replacement for Saint-Pierre the estate of Hermanoville. Hermanoville. He died at the age of 75 leaving the 10th walk unfinished. The Marquis de Girondin, Hermanoville's owner, buried Rousseau on an isle of poplars there and established a pilgrimage for the sentimental devotees who come to pay tribute. <coughs> it included an itinerary that instructed the visitor to not only... I'll start again. It included an itinerary that instructed the visitor not only how to walk through the garden towards the tomb but how to feel. Rousseau's private revolt was becoming public culture. And thus ends part two of the second chapter and we will go on to walking and thinking and walking. It seems to be about Kierkegaard but We have to wait for that to come on another day. Well, when's the last time you felt like going for a walk and talking to yourself and imagining yourself at one with the walk? This is a great uh, history of walking, isn't it? It's certainly moving along at a slow pace.